is the third service. Come on. Good morning, church. That's a little more like you. You guys should be more awake than the first and second service. Don't let them out mourning you. Um, you know, last night, it's funny. I, I, I'm always nervous about my phone transitioning at night. I know my cell phone does that. But I'm like nervous. I'm like a Boy Scout. I have to be prepared, right? So I had my iPod, and I couldn't change the time on that because it just syncs with the stars or whatever. So I, I put my alarm for there, and I took my cell phone, and, I, and I, before 12 o'clock last night, I pushed it forward. And then I waited, and it didn't transition. So I didn't know when that magical time happens that your phone automatically transitions. So I did push it forward already an hour. And then I told my wife to set her phone, which she's annoyed by because, you know, she has to get up a lot earlier than she needs to. Uh, but my cell phone alarm goes off, and yeah, it does transition in the middle of the night. So I woke up at 6 o'clock this morning, <laughs> had to go back to bed. It was kind of hard to fight that when you're preaching. But, uh, but yeah, I'm glad I made it uh, on time here. As you see from my last name, I hope you deduce that I'm from Tehran. That's the capital of Iran. They're trying to build nuclear weapons. I have nothing to do with that. And uh, we left the country a long time ago, so don't blame me. Uh, but there's something I want to share about pastors, preaching pastors. Um, there are three recurring nightmares that most preaching pastors have. The first is that you show up on a Sunday morning, and you stand up here, and you open up your Bible where you left your notes, and they are gone. And you're sitting there trying to wing it through a service. And with, normally it's okay. I, I can wing anything. But when there's PowerPoints you have to follow, you notice pastors who've lost their notes will be like this. So the next point is, and they're looking over their shoulder quite a bit, that means they lost their notes. The second recurring nightmare, which some of you may have had in a different context, is that the pastor is standing up here in his underwear preaching, but nobody else notices. You've had that dream before? Yeah. And uh, you, all you want to do is crawl up in a hole and just run away, but you have to finish the sermon in your underwear, which is always scary. The third is that you show up, and the whole church is seated, and the worship stopped, and it's all quiet, everyone's hands are folded, and you walk in, and you're late to your own service. That's a real big nightmare for pastors. So we're always setting multiple alarms, and our wives or spouses are helping us get on time, get up on time. Now, but in 1999, uh, Easter Sunday and Daylight Savings fell on the same day. I got up that morning. And I'd already planned my day out, got up early, went to Home Depot, and I got two planks of wood and was very happy-go-lucky, got my coffee, was going to church. And I was surprised. I used to work for an Iranian church, and they weren't particularly known to be on time. And so I show up in all the parking lots full, and I'm like, oh, wow, I guess for Easter they come early. That's cool. And it's my second year at the church, so I was still trying to make a good impression at this, uh, at this church. And so I show up, and I make my cross in the parking lot, nail it together, and I walk in with my cross, and, the, and one of the elders grabs me and says, Kayvon, where were you? And I'm like... What do you mean, where was I? He's like, you're late. And I'm like, no, I'm clearly like you know, 40, 45 minutes early. He's like, no, you're 15 minutes late. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, it's daylight savings. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I wasn't married back then. <laughs> I was single, one alarm, and it didn't go off. Or I did go off, but I didn't ever make it go forward. So back then they didn't have that cool thing that it did it for you. So I walk in, and luckily, well, weird part is I, I actually did the worship and the sermon back then. It was a very small church, and uh, I was doing the English services and the youth services. So I walk in, and everyone's hands are folded, and they look at me, and they start clapping. The pastor made it late. They were excited because for the first time, they beat me to church, right? And, uh, and so I walk in, super nervous, disheveled. I put the cross down. I'm trying to get the guitar and my notes. And, and you know what? God had mercy and grace on me that day. Uh, about 14 people, uh, actually not 14, uh, like a 10 or so, 8 or 10 or so, uh, it was a while back, if I remember, rededicated their lives to Christ that day, which made me feel a lot better for being late to service. God still uses us even in our disheveled state. Well, I know for the past few weeks you guys have been diving into the Beatitudes, which is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Arguably, actually not even arguably, it is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by any man 
And it's incredible, the insights, the wisdom, the power, how uh, ironic some of the stuff was that he said, turning over some of the beliefs in the Old Testament and just saying, there's a new covenant I'm going to break with you today. And he began to preach the sermon. And as a preacher, I've preached through this series before at different churches, and, and, and I'm always humbled and I feel inadequate to talk about the greatest sermon of all time. How can I preach and make the greatest sermon greater? And the conclusion that I've come to is that you can't. The words and the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are perfect. There's nothing that I can do to make it better. But one thing I can share with you is that for every season, for every generation, for every person, for every culture that preaches the Sermon on the Mount, God reveals something great, a great love, a great mystery for them in their lifestyle in such beautiful and profound ways. The truths that were preached 100 years ago applied to them as they do now in the Silicon Valley where you are. The first three of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn and meek, describe the blessings that come from emptiness. When you empty yourselves, when you're left with nothing, and you're just crying out of pain to God. The fourth and pivotal Beatitude juxtaposes the blessings of emptiness with the blessings of fullness that comes when we hunger and thirst for His righteousness. The next three, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, and peacemakers, describe the impact that righteousness or right living before God has in the lives of believers. These are the outpouring of someone who is hungry, who is thirsty for God. And as you draw closer to God, you become more merciful. Your heart is more purified. You find true happiness despite the circumstances, even the difficult circumstances in your life. As you draw closer to God, when hardships happen, it doesn't crush you. It makes you a better person. There's three questions that I hope to answer or attempt to answer for you today. What is mercy? What does it mean? What is it? Must we always be merciful, or is there a time when we shouldn't show mercy to others? And can we earn eternal salvation by showing mercy? Let's begin with the first one. What is mercy? Is it different than grace? We often have them interchanged, grace and mercy. We see them turn back and forth, and we use them for the same terms. Grace is slightly different. I believe grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's an unmerited, a free gift like salvation and peace. You don't deserve peace. You don't deserve salvation. You cannot work to get that. All genuine believers and followers of Christ have benefited from God's Incredible, loving, amazing grace. That's where that song comes from. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's actually withheld punishment. Just a little while ago, my son, four-year-old son, not my two-year-old son, threw my cell phone into the toilet. It didn't survive. I went up to him and I said, why did you throw the cell phone in the toilet? Very confused. I was. He looks at me and says, I don't know. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, man. I was fuming. Thank goodness my wife was there. My punishment was lifelong. I was going to say, you are grounded for life. You will never leave this house. You are, I mean, I was so mad. Luckily, it was my backup phone. They didn't know it was my backup phone. Somehow they went in my drawer and grabbed this one, not on the counter. Thank goodness. But I have two phones. I'm like ADD. I, I have to make sure. If I lose my phone, I have a backup ready to go, you know. Uh, be prepared, Boy Scouts, right? I learned that early on. But even still, it looked exactly the same. They didn't know. He didn't know it was my main phone. My wife stepped in, and I was going to ground him for life. My wife said, no, one month. And I'm like, okay, 
So I got a one-month punishment for that. It was like restrictions from things. It wasn't that bad. But I know that I'm not always merciful. Sometimes my first reaction isn't mercy. It's justice. He did something wrong. Let's take care of him. (laughs) Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And haven't we all been shown the incredible mercy from God? None of us deserve to be here. I don't deserve to stand up here, to be honest with you. There's nothing good in me that allows me to stand here and preach. It's only by the grace and mercy of God by which I stand, I speak, I live, and will continue to serve. Why is mercy so important? What's the big deal? Well, what about justice? Isn't that equally as important to God? William Barclay said this, A Christless world is a callous world, and mercy was never a characteristic of pagan life. In the regular world, mercy is not heralded. It's not popular. It doesn't get you the raise. In fact, look at our today's heroes. These men and women are not often men or women of great mercy. They're not nice guys. They hurt people. They steal ideas. They crush their competition. The word crush is used. We will crush that company and take it over, hostile. They sometimes have very little mercy in the way they deal in their businesses. Yet we live in a valley that celebrates greed, success, power, the destruction of others and other companies. And don't forget the 80-hour work weeks we're called to have in the Silicon Valley. Happiness will come with your next promotion, they say. Surely happiness will come when you get more stock options. Happiness will come when you're the last person standing with all of the toys. Happiness will come when you forsake your family for the cause of the company. Come on, be a team player. Sacrifice for the team, people. Get the raise. What does God say about sacrifice and mercy? Hosea 6.6 6 says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, most of us can sacrifice pretty well. We can give our money, our time. Some of you guys served yesterday in cleaning up your new campus coming up. You have talents. You're using it back on the, on the PowerPoints and the audio and the worship band. All these people that serve and set up these chairs for you guys and tear them down, they know how to serve and so do you. You know how to give. Show up to church on time. Read your Bible. Pray. But God elevates mercy above all these sacrifices. He puts it much higher. Not just mercy, it also says in 1 Samuel 15 that to obey is better than sacrifice. That just messes with our God equation, doesn't it? We need to do more. We need to be better. We need to learn more scriptures. We need to pray more and give more. That will make us more godly and God will love us more. We don't say it, but we live it a lot of times, striving for God rather than being more merciful and obedient. To obey and to show mercy is higher for God than anything you can do in this church. Those are all good things, don't get me wrong. We give, I pray, I read the Bible, I do good things for God, I know, but I do not think it draws me closer. I know that I'm closer to God when I am showing mercy, when I'm obedient to his word, and when I'm still, that's when I'm the greatest obedient person to him. The Good Samaritan is an incredible story in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Open up with me. We're going to read it together. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 starts with this. It says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood and test, to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus responded, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on by the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring, an oil, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn to take care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you might have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Martin Luther King preached on this exact story in the Bible. He said there was a wrong question that was asked by the Levite and the lawgiver. The question that they were asking was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Are more robbers out there? Is this a trap? Will I get beaten? This might be a trick. But when the Good Samaritan came by this man, he reversed that question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Friends, that's mercy. That's compassion and love that when we apply mercy correctly, it reverses the injustices we see in this world. We seek to better the life of the other, not just for ourselves. We actually become more Christ-like as we show mercy to those around us, those who are hurting, those who are lost. The priests and the Levite, they knew how to sacrifice. They gave of their money real loud at church. They prayed on the street corners. They knew how to pray. They observed the Sabbath. They wouldn't cook. They wouldn't clean. They wouldn't do anything on the Sabbath. They honored their Sabbath. They knew the law. They memorized the scriptures. They knew so much, yet they could not live them out in their own lives when the time came. Love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. The Samaritan, however, saw the pain in the life of this man who was beaten. And he stopped and he did something about it. He stopped because he cared. He stopped because he'd experienced the mercies of God in some way to be able to show it to somebody else who was hurting on the road. Alan Ross says this, people who know more of God's mercy will themselves be more merciful. If we think we deserve mercy and grace, we become intolerant of others, even judgmental. I agree. As Christians, sometimes we judge others. How could they do that sin? How could they live this way? How could they? How could they? How could they? And we judge them for their actions and their lifestyles and their beliefs. And yet we ourselves are desperate sinners in need of God's grace every day, aren't we? Yet we judge others and don't show a lot of mercy or grace to them. We see the hurting and we walk right by. We mock them. Mercy, I believe, is not earned. It's given. It's learned. It matures 
And when it's practiced properly in the life of the believer, I believe mercy reveals God's heart. Mercy brings justice to an unjust world that we live in. Let me share with you a story of my dad. My dad is not a particularly godly man, to be honest. I had some rough times with him growing up. He was raised as a radical Muslim till his late teens. He went to college, and in college he was uh, picked up by this wave of communism that took Iran, and, and he became a teacher. He actually went to jail for communism, for being a teacher of it, and, and he was an atheist, ardent atheist my whole, most of my life, didn't believe in God, and he wasn't a very happy man, to be honest with you. But there's a story I want to share with you that happened in the 90s. We had to leave Iran pretty urgently. There was a war between Iran and Iraq. Saddam Hussein had invaded my country. There were bombings. We were living through bombings. And my parents knew. They were both highly educated, and they said, we need to get out of this country. My dad had built a very successful business. He had, he had, he had built it from the ground up. He was a chemist and a, a wonderful company, and he gave shares of it to his brothers and sisters freely. They didn't even have to work for the company. He just loved his brothers and sisters, and he gave them each portions of the company. <clears throat> Came here. We had to leave a lot. We lost a lot. Uh, grew up in California most of my life, and we were middle class, worked hard. My dad had a dry cleaners. On weekends, I would go wash carpets in the back of his store. My sister, God bless her, the older one, would go uh, weeknights, even school nights, and serve at my dad's store and, and help him out there. And we weren't living the rich life, trust me. We were paycheck to paycheck. Finally, the door opened up. We got our citizenship here, and my dad was able to go back to Iran. But before that time, his brother, one of his brothers had sent him a very dark and evil letter, cursing him, yelling at him, Tell him, you're living this high life in America while we suffer here in Iran. My dad went back, and he went to his company, and they said, uh, you don't own your company anymore. And my dad's like, what? What do you mean I don't own the company anymore? They said, your brother. He took the deed to the city, the police, and he said that you escaped, that you're against the government, that you ran away, that you're a criminal. And he had them change the deed of your company to his name. My dad goes, really? He did that? He said, yeah, and he thought, okay. He went to his brother and said, I, I know what you've done, but I would like my company back. And the brother said, I won't give it to you. And I said, what? He said, what do I need to do to get my company back from you? This is the brother that he'd given shares to. He'd loved his whole life, his younger brother. He said, you need to buy it back from me. Oh, for a large sum of money, my dad had to borrow and beg others for because he didn't have it. When I heard that story, here I am, the, the Christian of the family, the pastor, the preacher, supposedly the most godly man in my family. No, I was fuming. How could he? How could he steal my dad's company and then want to sell it back to him? Are you kidding me? I was so angry. I just want to go up there. I haven't beaten anybody in my life. I've been a good boy. But man, I had those urges. And this is after several years of being a Christian. I called my dad a year later. Dad, what are you doing? I'm having dinner. With who? My brother. Which one? He didn't say the brother stole my company, but he named him. And I'm like, what? You're having dinner with him in your house? How could you? I got more angry the second time. Why would you show that kindness to a brother who stole your company and made you buy it back? Why, Dad? I genuinely hurt. You know my dad's response? Not a Christian. Not a God follower, not someone who is a nice man all the time. He said, Kayvon, he's still my brother. Oh, <laughs> stabbed in my heart, right? My dad, who doesn't even follow Jesus, is more merciful than I am. I mean, man, is that not a, a great image of, of mercy at its greatest? There's another story I want to share with you. 
comes from a movie. I don't know how many of you guys have, have watched this movie. It's called Les Miserables. Anyone raise your hand? Yeah. Raise your hand if you've seen or seen the movie, the play, the book. Raise your hand. Oh, my gosh. That's like a third of you. The rest of you, where have you been? This is like arguably the best book outside the Bible. I mean, I would put it up there. It is so good. An incredible transformation. It's coming this summer to San Francisco. If you haven't seen the play, go watch it. If you haven't seen the movie, that's your homework assignment. I'm an easy preacher. I, I, I don't like reading myself, so I just watch the movie, right? The cliff notes. Um, what an incredible story of grace and mercy. It starts with this man, John Valjean. He's a man who we find out has been in jail for, for many years. He went to jail for five years. He was given a five-year prison sentence for what? For stealing a loaf of bread. A five-year sentence. Was that justice? Where was the mercy in the judge? He didn't even steal it for himself. It was for his sister, sick sister. During that time, he tried to escape three times to go help his sister. And three times he was caught. They added 12 years to his sentence. Another two years for beating a guard on one of those escape attempts. 19 years this man spent in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Where's the injustice in that? Where's the justice in that? You see him coming and he's on parole, but this, this, this policeman, Javert, hates him despises him and everything he stands for and wants to destroy him. He's trying to catch him in something so he can throw him back in jail. He's mad that he got out after 19 years. He escapes parole and, and, uh, and, and runs and he goes to this house, knocks on this door. This priest opens up. He says, I need food. I need help. And the priest says, come on in. Come on in. Welcomes him in like his own son and sits him down at the dinner table. They feed him. They talk to him. And they love on him. And then they go to sleep that night, and I want you to see a clip of the movie that will share with you some more of the story. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank and... God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack 
and found all this silver. He claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillo, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why, why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Wow. For those of you who have not seen this film or play or book, you've truly missed out. What an incredible act of mercy. Isn't that what Christ does to us? Looks at us and ransoms us from the hell that we live in. Gives us a new life through the cross. That's what we celebrate at Easter time. It's the cross. It's the sacrifice that he's made for us. Nothing that we've done, nothing that he did. The rest of the story, I don't want to ruin the whole story. It is incredible, the transformation of this man. From bitterness and hatred and murder towards everyone he came across to becoming a light for God. Truly a light for God. We need to show mercy because when we do so, we see injustices wiped away. Same story in, in John chapter 8 when the half-naked woman is thrown at Jesus' feet because she committed adultery. And Jesus responds by saying, he who is not sin cast a first stone. One by one they walked away. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? The woman says, they're all gone. He says, then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. In this one story, we see the collision of justice and mercy at its best. God forgiving us, forgiving me of my sins. And saying, Kayvon, go and sin no more. He doesn't justify my sins. He doesn't say it's okay. He doesn't say everything's all right. Go and sin no more. Final question. Can showing mercy save us? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It on the surface looks like, wow. You can actually gain salvation by being merciful. That's not true. Salvation comes by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest no man should boast. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift, a free gift of God. 
lest no man should boast. So we know that you cannot earn salvation, but by showing mercy, you show the heart of God. You draw nearer to the heart of God. You become more like Christ. I want to have you guys all stand with me, and I want to share a final little line from a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything from Tulian Javichian, grandson of Billy Graham. I modified this quote to say this, because Jesus was strong for me, I am free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I am free to lose. Jesus was someone, I am free to be no one. Jesus was extraordinary, I am free to be ordinary. Jesus succeeded for me, I am free to fail. Because Jesus had mercy on me, I am free to show mercy to others. Close your eyes, let's pray. God, I thank you for the men and women in my life who when I was spoiled and running away from you and hating those who were Christians. God, you came through them and gave me the message of the gospel. The true gospel that says, Kayvon, you're not good enough. None of us are good enough. But God, you loved us just the same. Thank you for having mercy in my life. Thank you for letting me show mercy to a few others. Help me to be more merciful. Help me to love as this priest loved Jean Valjean. Help me to love as my dad, who isn't even a believer yet, God, loved his brother. I know I have a long ways to grow in mercy, God, but you are good, and your mercy reigns forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.